Hey, how did, uh, how did everybody sleep last night? Everybody sleep okay last night? I, I, I got to ask a question. How many of you, it's a dangerous question, how many of you got less than five hours of sleep last night? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. All right. I see you out there in the balcony. How many of you, how many of you think you got less than two hours of sleep last night? All right. Is there anybody crazy, anybody crazy out there? Did any of you not sleep last night? Raise your hand if you just didn't sleep. You're just so excited to be again. No, she, Can you, slept she slept all night. Okay. Anybody not sleep at all? And there's, there's some of you. Give yourselves a round of applause. Give yourselves a round of applause. Hey, um, last night, last night, we began our conversation talking about how God is the one who makes life meaningful because God is the author of life. God, in a sense, is the meaning of life. And this morning, this morning, the title of our message, again, I want to encourage you, continue to bring your journals and, and your notepads and your Bibles with you, your booklets, so that you can take notes and have good conversations. If you want to get those out, this morning we're talking about this. Sin promises life, but only makes it meaningless. Sin promises life, but only makes it meaningless. When I was in the uh, fourth grade, I was in Mrs. Mayfield's class. And Mrs. Mayfield had this system where every month, at the beginning of the month, she would rotate our seating, and we were constantly sitting with different people, and we would sit in these kind of four tables put together in a square, and so you had somebody sitting across from you and somebody sitting next to you, and and so every month she would switch the, the seating rotation. On this particular Monday, I remember walking into Mrs. Mayfield's class as a fourth grader, and sitting across from me was Brittany. And Brittany, this is before I met Sarah, okay? So this is before I met Sarah. Uh, and, and so Brittany was like everything, and, and, and all the guys liked Brittany, and Brittany was amazing, and and. And I was sitting across from her, and I was so excited to think about the next month of sitting across from Brittany, and, and we started talking and getting to know each other and laughing and making jokes and having so much fun, and, and a few weeks went by, and then one morning when we were in class, Brittany started to play footsies underneath the table with me. No, 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 no. Now, here's the thing, here's the thing, guys. I'm talking, I'm talking to a room full of junior hires, okay? You have matured way beyond this point, but you remember, you remember when you were in the fourth grade, it basically goes, you play footsies and then you get married. Like that's just the transition, that's how it works. And so I'm thinking, this is amazing, we're playing footsies underneath the table, it's really great. And then one Friday, Brittany says to me, she says, hey, Eric, would you like to come over to my house on Saturday? And, and I was already ready. I, I was already going to say yes. And then she sweetened the deal. She said, Eric, um, I have a trampoline in my backyard. She said, I've got, my mom stacks the cabinets with fruit roll-ups and Capri Suns. Okay. Now, again, 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 put yourself in the mind of a fourth grader. If I want to marry this girl, a trampoline, caprice, and fruit roll-ups, that's the perfect wedding reception, right? Like, that's it. 
And so mom and I jump in the minivan that Saturday morning and we drive over to Brittany's house and my mom and Brittany's mom are talking and hanging out and Brittany and I are jumping on the trampoline and drinking Capri Suns and eating fruit roll-ups, having the best time of our lives. And then Brittany says, Eric, did you bring your rollerblades with you? And I said, I bring my rollerblades everywhere with me. Of course I brought my blades. And she said, let's go ride down to the bottom of the hill so our moms can't see us. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so I, uh, so I'm processing all of this and I'm, I'm strapping on the blades and we cruise down to the very bottom of the hill and Brittany, when we get to the very bottom of the hill, Brittany says, Eric, close your eyes. Wow. And, uh, and she says, she says, hold out your hands. Hold out your hands. And so, again, as a fourth grader, I'm like, I'm about to have my, like, my first kiss. Like, I, 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 like, I've kissed mom, but that's it. Like, this is a big deal. Like, oh, my goodness. And, and so I close my eyes, and I put my hands out. And while my eyes are closed and my hands are out, Brittany grabbed, like, these two giant clods of dirt, and she dumped them on my hands. And I opened, and I was like, ah! And she was like, ha, 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 and just, like, rollerbladed away, Right? Which was weird, but I was like, I don't know, girls are weird, whatever. Like, this is still the best day of my life. Monday morning, show up to class, to Mrs. Mayfield's class, and uh, Mrs. Mayfield had changed the seating rotation again. And, uh, and I'm sitting all the way over here, and Brittany is sitting all the way over here. And sitting across from Brittany is David. David. Is David. And here's the thing about David. Here's the thing about David. David was buff. I mean, he's buff. I mean, this kid, this kid David could bench press 10 pounds, no problem. Like, he's huge, huge. All the girls liked David. He had great eyes, great hair. I hated David. But anyways, David was perfect. David and Brittany are sitting across from each other. And I'm all the way over here. And early that morning, I look over at Brittany and David. And they're playing footsies! Now, you guys, you guys, here's the, uh, here, here's the sad part of that story. Here's the sad part of that story. Um, that was 27 years ago, maybe 28 years ago. That was a long time ago. And I want you to know, right now, as I'm telling you that story, I'm still a little angry at David, okay? Like, I still feel it a little bit. Why? Because... Because I thought Brittany and I would be together forever. Thanks be to God we weren't. But I thought we would be. I was absolutely convinced. And then my heart was broken. I felt betrayed. I realized, maybe even though I wasn't able to verbalize it, or out loud process all of this, in that moment, I had put so much of my confidence and so much of my trust in Brittany... And in this new relationship, that when that shattered, so did my heart and my life. 
I had put so much hope in that. You see, sin is kind of like that. We, we put our hope in sin, and it will let us down every single time. Sin is marketed to us by Satan as the thing that will give us life, that will fill the void, that will give us joy and, and purpose and meaning. But sin always makes life meaningless. Sin always brings death. Now, there's this interesting conversation with Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 8. That Jesus has just uh, calmed a storm. They were out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and there's this crazy storm. The disciples were afraid they were going to lose their lives. And, and Jesus has this miraculous ability to calm the storm. One of the many pieces of evidence that he wasn't just a human, though he was 100% human, he was also 100% God. He calms the storm, and then look at what Jesus said to them in verse 25. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. In other words, Jesus understands everyone has faith. The question is, where is yours? What have you chosen to put your faith in? To help me demonstrate faith, because maybe that's a, a Bible term or a religious term, and you're like, what, what does faith mean? To help me illustrate this, I need my friends Pastor Connor and Atticus to come up here. Where's Atticus? He's up here somewhere. Guys, can you welcome Pastor Connor and Atticus to the stage? All right, here we go, gentlemen. So here's what I need you to do. I'm going to move this over here so we can all kind of see. Okay, so here's what, I, here's what I need you to do is uh, Atticus. Is this your youth pastor right here? Yes. Are you trust him? Yep. Like with your life? All right, we're going to see how that works out. All right, uh, go ahead and hold on to that, Atticus. Hold on to that right there. There you go. You're going to hold really tight on that, okay? All right, and Pastor Connor, here's what I want you to do. Remember, big liability at this moment. Parents might find out. Okay, so um, here's what I want you to do. Atticus, I want you to lean back in a moment. Okay, so hold your, yeah, hold on. Hold, I love that faith. There we go. I want you, Pastor Connor's going to hold on tight. He's not going to let you go. And I want you to lean back, okay? Lean back to the point where you are fully trusting him. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Wow. Okay, now hold on, guys. Hold on. Hold, on. hold this, guys. Hold this. Here we go. What you are seeing right now, this is faith. This is a picture of when the Bible uses the word faith. It could also be translated trust. That to put your faith in something is not an intellectual exercise. To say, I believe in Jesus, is not just a, a mental decision. It is a full-fledged life putting our trust in something bigger, stronger than ourselves. Here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and set up real quick. Atticus, okay, I'm going to ask you to do something here. Um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand right over here, Atticus. Okay, so uh, we're going to put it around there. There we go. Okay, now now on the count of three. All right, now hold on, hold on. All right, at the count of three, I want you to lean back. You ready? One. Two, I'm just kidding, Atticus. I'm just kidding. Because if you did that, you'd be off the stage, broken skull. Like, that's not good, right? But friends, friends, could I suggest to you that for so many of us, me included, we are quick to put our faith in things that could never hold us up. We are quick to put our faith in ourselves. 
in our desires. We fully trust for some weird reason that every single desire I have is a good one to follow through on. We, for some reason, put our faith in in the limited knowledge that we have and we draw conclusions that aren't true. For some reason, we have put our faith so deeply in ourselves that we begin to think, I know best and I am the center of the universe and I can make all my own decisions. But the truth is, if you continue to put your faith in sin or yourself, you will fall over every single time. Because you were always designed from the beginning to put your faith in God. To put your faith in something stronger, bigger than yourself. And the only one capable of holding you up is God himself. Could you guys give these two a round of applause? Thank you, gentlemen. So with that in mind, with that in mind, let's go to our text in Ecclesiastes. Let's see what Solomon might have for us. You see, Solomon tried putting his faith in everything else, including sin, and it came up empty. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, Solomon says this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I gave in to absolutely everything. I refused my heart no pleasure. What a great journal entry about the reality of sin. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was, everything was, everything was, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun, then flip over a few chapters to chapter 7, verse 20. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Look at what Solomon said. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Solomon said, I tried it all, including sin, and I came up empty, and there is nobody on planet earth who is free from sin. But maybe you're asking a really good question. What is sin? Well, what's like a, a definition of sin? Well, let's look at a few big ideas. Number one, sin is our human condition. Sin is the reality of our human condition. Psalm chapter 51 verse 5 says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Because we're born into a sinful, broken world, From sinful, broken parents, we can't escape it. Sin is a part of our own brokenness, even before we chose it. But then it's more. Number two, sin is every thought, word, or action that falls short of the glory of God. Sin is any thought, word, or action that falls short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the apostle Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, God who is perfect and holy has set a standard. And our sin is falling short of God's perfect standard. Sin is any time you and I dethrone God and put ourselves in his place. 
Think about sin this way. Sin is spelled S-I-N. What's at the very center of sin? The letter I. You see, sin is whenever I think I should get whatever I want and that I am the center of the universe. That's sin. Sin equals death. Spiritual death. Relational death. Biological death. Romans chapter 6 verses, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. For the wages, the payment of sin is death. But I want to help make this uh, practical for us. I, I, I want us to process a case study of what sin does in our lives. And we're actually going to look at a story of Solomon's father, King David. If, if you got your Bibles with you, I want you to flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And while you're flipping there, what we're going to talk about briefly this morning is five things that sin does in our lives. Five ways that sin ends up producing meaninglessness and a meaningless life. Five things sin does. Go ahead and write this down. Number one is this. Sin will make you isolate. Sin, which again, remember, is rebellion from God. It's rejection of God. It's, it's any thought, word, or action that is disobedient to God that doesn't align with his word. It's any time we put ourselves at the center of our lives or our universe. Number one, sin will make you isolate. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 says this. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. The text says that in the spring is when kings go off to war. But the text says here that David didn't go off to war, but he isolated himself. He stayed in a place where he shouldn't have stayed. He should have been with his community, with his army. But instead, he isolated himself. Now, spring was the preferred time to go to war because the weather was a little bit better and, and the days were a little bit longer. And, and we don't know exactly why David chose to disconnect. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he was feeling lazy. Maybe he was bored. We're not sure what it was that was motivating David, but what we do know is that he isolated from community. And I want to tell you right now that as soon as you choose to isolate from your youth group, as soon as you choose to isolate from your small group, as soon as you choose to isolate from your church, from those people who love Jesus and who love you and who help you and encourage you, you are giving Satan a perfect opportunity to drag you deeper into sin. Sin will make you isolated. In, in fact, it's been my experience. Satan will do his best work in your life when you're isolated. That when you let soccer or football or acting or the busyness of life, whatever, become your priority, instead of being with God's people, Satan will do his best work in your life. 
which is why you have to make a decision. Will your life be governed by your values and God's values, or will it be governed by your feelings? Let's go to the deep end for a minute, students. Will your life be governed by God's values and your values or by your feelings? In other words, if one of your values is to be in community, you better believe that right before youth group or right before church or right before you're about to meet up with your mentor, all of a sudden you're going to see a new show on Netflix or, or you're going to be streaming on TikTok and they're going to be all of your favorite videos and you're going to be tempted to give into your feelings that say, well, I'd rather just stay comfortably in my house or in my room than go into this space with these people who love God and might challenge me. Your feelings may tell you when you have a conflict with somebody in your youth group to, to just ghost them, to not talk with them, to avoid them. But if you choose to live by God's values and your values, you'll seek reconciliation. You see, it's so dangerous when we get by ourselves. In fact, this secular psychologist, his name is Dr. Scott Lyons, he's not even talking from a Christian perspective, he said this, you are more likely to become hooked on something or addicted to something in the absence of belonging and connection because it fills the void. Psychologists, secular psychologists who aren't even following God, they're just looking at the data and they're seeing more people become hooked and addicted to, to drugs or to alcohol or to whatever else, uh, social media or money or whatever it may be when they are isolated. From others because it fills that void that you were designed for it's also easier to justify your sin when you're living in isolation so the first thing sin will do it is it'll make you isolate number two write this down sin will make you selfish sin will make you selfish Look what happens next in the story. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David, he's kind of cruising around the roof. He sees this woman. He's attracted to her. He wants to find out about it. Now, here's the thing. At this point, David's already a married man. He doesn't need another wife. He's already a married man, but he sees this woman, and, and he's attracted to her. And so he asks about her, and, and his, his, his staff, his employees, his people who are paid, and literally, literally their livelihood is about making King David happy. They come back to him, and they say, uh, David, um, this woman, her, her, her name, she has a name, Bathsheba. Like she's a person, not just an object. She's a person, Bathsheba. Number two, she's a daughter. Like she has parents who love her and care for her. And number three, she's already married. She's in a marriage relationship with Uriah. But the story doesn't end there. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. You see, David, it, it, it's not necessarily like David's fault that he was attracted to Bathsheba. 
Like sometimes we can't even control that, exactly who we're attracted to. But you can always control who you date. You can always control who you pursue. You can always control your next steps. But David, because what sin does is it first isolates us and then it makes us selfish. Even though David knows Bathsheba is a woman, not an object to be used. She's a daughter, meaning she has parents who love her. And she's already a married woman. He doesn't care. And he doesn't take the time to evaluate his desires. In fact, I, I want to invite you to become somebody who's wise and who lives a meaningful life. And one of the ways you do that is by evaluating your desires. Here's just three questions around any desire that you have. Number one, does this relationship or decision disobey God's word? If David had just thought about that one question, does this relationship with Bathsheba... This decision to sleep with her, does it disobey God's word? Yes, very clearly it does. He could have stopped it. Number two, does this relationship or decision lead me to be more selfish? And number three, do the Christians in my life know about this relationship or decision? Students, I just want to say this lovingly. If there's something that you're participating in right now, that you're keeping secret from your youth pastor or your small group leader or your parents, chances are you're engaging in sin. Chances are you're engaging in something that is going to be ultimately destructive for you. And if you don't know if it's selfish or not, inquire of the Lord. Talk to God about it. Talk to your other leaders and invite them in. Number three, sin will make you deceitful. Sin will make you deceitful. Verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, this is Bathsheba's husband, who David has just slept with. David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Does David care about any of those things? No. He's incredibly deceitful. Because of the sin he's participated in. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and, uh, and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and he did not go home. Dude, some of you, some of you up to this point, maybe you thought, man, the Bible is so boring. The Bible is drama-free, it's boring, and so you watch Love is Blind, you scroll on TikTok, like, like you love The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Let me just tell you, if you just read the Bible, this stuff's crazy. These people were crazy. Like, the things that they were going through are crazy. You see, David, he was trying to deceive Uriah. 
He was trying to get out of being discovered that he was the father. You see, sin will cause our sensitivity to God's voice to grow weaker and weaker. In other words, sin, you can write this down, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. What what I mean by this is, for some of you, there's things that you're participating in right now. Things you're looking at online that, that six months ago, a year ago, you would have never imagined looking at it. And maybe you even remember the first time you saw that picture or watched that video and there was something in you where you just felt like, man, this is wrong. This doesn't feel right. I feel really uncomfortable. And now you watch several of these videos, look at several of these pictures every single day and it's like your sensitivity has worn off. For some of you, you remember the first time you lied to your parents, and it was so terrifying and so scary, and yet now it's like lies almost roll off of your tongue. Sometimes you don't even know when you're lying or telling the truth. Maybe for some of you, you remember when that friend, you found out about that friend gossiping about you, and you remember that deep pain in your heart that you felt that rejection betrayal and you told yourself i will never do that to another friend but now you're the person that everyone comes to for all the gossip you see while sin promises life like ah, if i look at those pictures if i do that thing if i have that gossip conversation with my friends i'm going to feel more connected i'm going to feel more alive it's going to be fun every single time it actually makes life more meaningless And you see, David, he was incredibly deceitful. And I see this in my own self. I've got a friend who, him and I hold each other accountable on several different things. And, and one of them is that we would eat healthy. And, and I remember uh, one time I was driving to my mother-in-law's house. And uh, uh, my, my in-laws had shared with us that we were going to have a giant feast. It was going to be like Louisiana jumbo or gumbo and like jambalaya and like there's going to be ribs and biscuits and all these things and and here's the thing you guys I've never passed by a buffet where I saw that price tag and I'm gonna be like I'm gonna make them wish they doubled it you know what I mean like I'm just all about it and so I was already thinking man I can't wait to just devour this food and then right as I was pulling up and I parked my friend texted me and my friend Justin he texted me he said hey man what's your plan to eat healthy today I said, I, I thought to myself, I don't got any plan. In fact, I'm going to derail this thing. And so you know what I did? I got deceitful. I, I played a pastor card. I was like, oh, you know what? Uh, thanks so much for asking. Um, and I avoided it. I said, how are you doing? What, what's your plan to eat healthy today? And my friend, he's such a good accountability partner. He wrote back. He said, Eric, stop avoiding the question." And I wrote him back and I said, you are so annoying. <laughs> and I said, all right, let's, let's talk about this. Can I ask you a question? Who in your life, who in your life is somebody that's holding you accountable? Somebody that you're allowing to speak into your decisions, that's able to show you some of the sin in your life. Life. Number four, sin will make you destructive. 
Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. So Uriah is carrying this letter. Uriah is carrying this letter back to the battlefield. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. That's cold. That's cold. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Satan's lies will tell you that sin will give you joy. But they always bring death and they make you into a destructive person. I remember when I was in junior high, I had kind of like a church version of myself that people at church saw, and then there was this real me. And I worked really hard to make sure that those two versions of me were not seen by the wrong people. So I made sure that my parents and youth leaders saw this church version of me, and then I made sure they didn't see the real version of me. And I remember at that time in my life, I was drinking, I was smoking, I was hanging out with all the wrong people. I remember I was keeping so many secrets from my parents, and I would go to bed at night, and I would tell myself, because I was so restless, I had a hard time sleeping, I would tell myself, every teenager goes through this, every junior higher goes through this, this is normal, this is a part of growing up, and yet I could tell that I was being corrupted, I could tell that, that something was missing, my heart was beginning to fill with more hatred and anger, and, and, and I was becoming a person that, that I didn't want to be, but I didn't know how to get out of it. And I found myself progressively doing things and participating in things that I was so ashamed of. I remember one time my little sister, who, you know, little sister looks up to you, big brother. And one time I was feeling so guilty about drinking with my friends that I tried to convince my little sister to drink with us. That's not what big brothers do. But you see, I was so ashamed of what I was doing, I didn't want to be alone. That, that's what sin does. Sin makes you destructive. David has Uriah killed to cover up his sin. And lastly, number five, sin will make you forget about God. This one's the worst of all. Sin will make you forget about God. Fast forward to the last few verses, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So look at this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I've got to be really clear here. Sin creates a chasm between us and God. Your sin, my sin, the reality of the sinful world creates a chasm, a gap, a wedge between us and God. A gap I can't step over and you can't step over on your own. A, a chasm that leads us to places where we even begin to forget about God. 
That's what sin will do. Sin, because it puts you at the center of the universe. Sin is all about I. It's about me. Because sin puts you at the center of the universe. Satan wants you to not think about God, to forget about God. But here's the amazing thing, and here's what you need to maybe wake up to, is even when you forget about God, he doesn't forget about you. That even if you have turned your back on God and rejected him, he has not turned his back on you. And what happens next in the story is God convicts David. He uses this prophet Nathan who tells him a story. And the story pierces to David's heart. And he feels the conviction of God. And maybe even right now, you're thinking about some of the sin that you participated before you came up to camp or what your life has looked like or, or all the things that you're doing over and over again to dethrone God or to not prioritize God or, or to basically say to God, I don't really care about you. Or, or you've maybe put God in this religious box, like a checkbox that you just go to church and you go to youth group and you do the bare minimum, but then you kind of live your own life. And you're realizing all of that sin has created this dis connection, this chasm between you and God, and you're beginning to feel conviction. And I want to remind you that God's conviction is a blessing from him. That when God convicts you and reveals your sin to you, it is a blessing from God, even though at first it may feel like a burden. God's conviction is a blessing because it is his way of making it crystal clear to you the thing you're doing, the way you're living is not okay. It will lead to meaninglessness and I have created you for meaningfulness. And I have more for you. And so though it may feel like a burden, it's actually a blessing because God wants a right relationship with you. Which is why we need to be willing to listen to God even when it feels like it slows down what we want to do or contradicts what we want to do. I'll end with this story. When Sarah and I, my wife and I, were just beginning to date, in fact, I think this was one of our very first dates, we went to uh, this museum called the LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And I'm just not an artist. I'm not gifted that way. And so... Art museums are like, they're the worst for me. Like, I just can't, I, I get, I just am not about it. But I wanted to impress Sarah. I wanted her to think that I was like really smart and, and artsy and whatever. And so I was like, let's go to this LACMA, let's go to this art museum. It's right in downtown Los Angeles. And so we get to the museum and, and we're circling it, trying to find parking. And we can't find a parking spot. And then literally right out in front of the museum, right out in front of the museum is this perfect parking spot and there's no cars there and so i pull up and i go this is a sign from god i'm gonna marry this woman right like you're just looking for every sign so i'm like this is a sign this is amazing well as we park i notice that there's this pole right out in front of the parking spot and there's like this like i don't know like football field length of like rules and you can't park on tuesdays between this time and there's like there's all these things and honestly i just chose not to read them I was like, you know what, like, I don't know, that says a lot, but it looks like this spot's open, and, and I want to impress Sarah, and we're going to go into the museum, and maybe she'll fall in love with me, and I'll propose. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but, and so I just neglected all that writing. We walk inside, we visit the whole museum, and 
And then as we're leaving, the sun is setting. We walk out, and where I had parked my car, my car is no longer. And I start to panic and freak out. I'm in L.A., hadn't been there very often, and I don't know where the car is. So we're walking around the museum trying to find it, seeing if I parked it somewhere else. And eventually we realize, no, the car's not here. Something happened. So we go to the info booth at the museum, and I ask the guy, I say, hey, I, I parked my car right there, but it's not there. Do you know what's going on? And he said, he literally was like, did you read those signs? And I was like, no, like, I'm on a date. Like, no, I didn't read it. And, and he's, like, he's like, man, they, they towed your car about 20 minutes away. And where they towed your car is sort of, it's on the street that divides the Crips from the Bloods, like two pretty active gangs in Los Angeles. It's like on that street, that's, that's the tow lot, and they're closing in about 30 minutes, and it's gonna take you about 20 minutes to get there without traffic, so you need to go get in a taxi, and this was before Uber, so we go wait out there, and, and we see a taxi, and and, and remember, I, I'm on one of my first dates with Sarah. Like, this ain't going well. And, and so Sarah and I jump in this taxi. And as we're in this taxi, like, the, the taxi guy had, like, this, uh, I don't know, like, this metal kind of fence thing in the, like, it, it, was, it just felt like we were in the back of a police car. Like, it just was weird. And, and, and we told him where we were trying to go. And, and we had mentioned that we heard it's kind of an unsafe area. And, and he said, oh, yeah, I take people down there all the time. And he said, in fact, it's so dangerous down there, I carry one of these. He pulled out a gun as he's driving us on our first date. Taxi man with a gun. I'm like, Sarah is blocking me and never coming back. We get there, pay an exorbitant amount of money, miss the movie, the date, the plan, everything that we had going on. And I think about that often and how all of that could have been avoided if I had just read the signs. Friends, God has given us his perfect wisdom, his perfect revelation. Everything that we need to know for how we can be forgiven and how by the power of the Holy Spirit we can follow Jesus and resist Satan and the sin. But we have to make a commitment to believe that putting our faith, where'd that rope go? That putting our faith in ourselves or in things that could never hold us up is not gonna be how we're gonna do it anymore but that we're going to put our faith and our trust in God and his word. Because sin promises life, but it will only make it meaningless. Now tonight we're going to talk about how God chose to respond to our rebellion, chose to respond to our sin. And it might surprise you, but before we get there tonight, I want to invite you into your cabin time and for the rest of today to really think deeply about how sin, your own sin, maybe even other people's sin spilling into your life has affected and impacted your relationship with God. 
And are you done living the meaningless life? Because if so, there's something way better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we're thinking about the reality of sin and its effects on our lives and how Solomon said that there's nobody, there's nobody who hasn't sinned. How you inspired the Apostle Paul to teach us and to show us how the wages of sin is death. That sin kills and destroys our relationship with you and with each other and every part of our lives. And God, that conviction that maybe we're feeling right now, would we choose to trust that it's actually a blessing because it will help us choose you? And so would we lean into that today? You reveal it to us because you actually love us and you want something more for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.